I want to put some scripture on the screen for you immediately because I want you to take a pen out or a pencil and write it down because this is what we're going through during the Christmas season. If you haven't been around the last couple of weeks, we started talking about the birth narratives of Jesus. And sometimes when you read the Christmas story in the Bible, you, you go to Luke or you go to Matthew and, and you're just, it's just confusing sometimes about what takes place when and how does this fit in there and where. And so this list is actually a chronological list of all of the birth narratives in the Bible. And so if you'll just jot those down, just like they're listed, you will have a chronological list that when you go to the Bible and when you study, when you read, you'll understand, okay, this takes place first, this takes place last, this is in between, and it will be a great, great help to you. And so uh, the ones highlighted in, in yellow are the ones that we are spending some time on during the Christmas season. We talked about John 1 uh, two weeks ago. Uh, we talked about Luke 1, where the angel visits Mary last week. Kevin preached on that. We'll spend some time in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 today. So if you want to turn there, that'd be great. Uh, Luke 2 next week, and then on the 23rd, we'll, we'll look at Matthew and the visit of the wise men, okay? So, um, would you turn to Matthew 1, 18 to 25? And that's where our text is today. And Kevin left off last week about uh, the angel visiting Mary. And Mary will actually spend about three months with her cousin Elizabeth in the hills of Judea, f- far away from her home. And uh, there's a bunch of uh, poetry that goes on and a bunch of songwriting. And, and there must have been a cool coffee shop because the, you know, the creative juices are flowing. And you're not laughing, so you need to read uh, Luke chapter 1, please. Uh, so um, then after three months, she comes home. And that's where we are in our text. Let's read it together. Verse 18 of chapter 1 of Matthew. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as she considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did exactly as the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, three months away is a long time, and three months is probably about the time that uh, Mary is along in her pregnancy, and to be three months along is, uh, it's probably noticeable by now. And she comes home, and Joseph finds out, and he doesn't know about the Holy Spirit part yet. Mary doesn't tell him. And the text says he is a just man. It means that he was committed to the Old Testament law. He was committed to doing the right thing. He was committed to upholding righteousness. And he decides that divorce is the right course of action. Because, after all, in his best reasoning, 
what has happened is that Mary has gone away into the hill country of Judea and she's had a fling and something needs to be done about that. And no one would blame him, right? Betrayal like that should expect consequences. And so he sets his mind to divorce her. And he, he sees two ways to go about that. But let's talk about this word divorce because that's a little confusing. Even in our text, it says in verse 18 that Joseph and Mary are betrothed. Then in verse 19, it'll say her husband. So maybe they're married. Maybe they're not engaged. Maybe they're now they're married in verse 19. Verse 20, it says, the angel says, take Mary as your wife. Wait a minute. So now they're engaged again. What, what's going on? Are they engaged or are they married? And the answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, engagement in the first century is not like our engagement. A betrothal in the first century meant that you were legally married. And the only thing that could separate you was divorce. Betrothal, though, was also at the same time as it was legally married, it was also not yet married. Because normally a couple would spend their betrothal months, sometimes even up to a year or a year and a half, uh, preparing making living arrangements and getting their finances in order and making sure they had a support group to, you know, help them in this new marriage and new household that they were established. And so they are husband and wife legally, but they are just betrothed practically because they do not, they do not live together. And so then the course would be that a wedding ceremony would take place. And in that wedding, after that, they would be physically and they would be spiritually as well as legally married. And so they are betrothed and yet they are husband and wife. And because of that, divorce is the only way out. And that's what Joseph sees. And he only sees two ways to go about that. First, he could go about that in a very public and shameful way. It would be like pinning a scarlet letter on Mary. Or... With just two witnesses, the law allowed for a quieter divorce. And that would introduce some compassion into the equation. It won't change the shame part because people are going to find out. People are going to know. But he loves this woman. And so he wants to do as little damage as possible. And so this is what he sets out to do. This is his plan. This is a good plan, it seems to him. It's a logical plan. We would even call it probably the right plan. The problem is, it wasn't God's plan. It wasn't God's plan. How many of you have made plans like that? Everybody lives there? Somebody said this, when a man plans, a woman laughs. And all the women laughed, yeah. Somebody went further and said, announcing your plans is a good way to hear God laugh. How many of you live there? Yeah. In these texts, Joseph changes his plans. And we're going to see why he is commanded to change his plans and take a different course. And we'll discover the reason as we look at some key phrases. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. It says this. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Let's look at a few phrases. The first phrase I want to look at is this phrase, son of David, son of David. If you'll go back to your Old Testament history and your Old Testament uh, thinking, you'll understand and you'll remember that King David was 
the greatest king in Israel's history. When people looked to a hero of the Israelite people, they pointed to David. And the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, we we are told of this greater David that would come. Because the first David obviously died. But we are pointed to the fact that there is going to be another David that will come on the scene. And he's going to be greater than the first David. Uh, there are several scriptures that point this out. One of them is Ezekiel thirty-four twenty-four, And the Lord says, I will be their God and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord I have spoken. And we would read that initially and we would think, oh, he's talking about the Old Testament David. But the problem is that Ezekiel writes these words in 600 BC. And that's 400 years after the real King David died. So obviously there is another King David that we're pointing to. It's a second King David. And we find in Matthew that Jesus is this second greater King David. He's even called this. Matthew opens his book this way. He says in the first chapter, first verse, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There are some blind men in chapter nine that say to Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. They use the title. In chapter 21, there are some kids that are singing in the temple and they are saying to Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David. And they're referencing Jesus. They're giving that title to him. In fact, Matthew uses the title 13 times in his book. And 12 of those times, he's talking about Jesus Christ. And the other time is here. And it's a title not given to Jesus, but given to Joseph. Why? Why is Joseph all of a sudden the son of David? Because Joseph is a direct descendant of David. And he is in line for the throne of David. And it follows that Joseph's first son will also have that privilege and be in line for the throne. Jesus can be the Messiah precisely because Joseph has lineages, lineage directly descended from King David. See, the Messiah was a big deal. All of Israel was looking for this greater King David, this Messiah that would come. Now, I need you to think through the implications of that for Joseph. Um, And to help, uh, I'm going to put a picture of some familiar faces. Uh, Who is in the middle on the bottom? Anybody? Queen Elizabeth. Yes, we call her Queen Elizabeth. Who's on the top on the left? Prince Charles. We call him Prince Charles. On the right? Prince William. Some of you are a little more sketchy on Prince William, although they've been in the news ad nauseum lately. Not that I follow that. I'm just, you know. Uh, So why do we call her Queen Elizabeth? We call her the queen because she's still alive. Why do we call Prince Charles? Why do we say Prince Williams? Because the queen is still alive. When the queen dies, what will we call Charles? King, if he lives that long. Okay. When Charles dies and the queen dies, what will we call William? King. Pretty easy. Okay. Same for Joseph. Same for Joseph. Jesus will never be the king. Jesus will never be the Messiah. Think about this. While Joseph is still around. Joseph has to die before Jesus becomes the Messiah. That's how succession works. Now, let's complicate matters more. Because we, when we look at the, the historical King David, 
we find that he took the throne when he was 30 years of age. Second uh, Samuel tells us that. And so here's a question. What would be a reasonable guess? If there is a greater David to come, greater than the first David, and the first David took his throne at age 30, what would be a reasonable guess as to when the greater David would take his throne? At or before age 30? Yes or no? Yeah, probably yes. Probably yes. And what does that mean for our buddy Joseph? Means an, means an early death. Means an early death. Most assume that right now he's about 18 to 20 years old, and so by his late 40s, 50 if he's lucky, but more than likely much, much earlier than that, Joseph's death will allow the Messiah, Jesus, to reign. And it's probably one of the reasons that we don't hear much about Joseph, because he died early. That is a big change in plans. You don't think he wanted to retire, bounce grandchildren on his knees? That's a change in plans. But we're ahead of ourselves a little bit. Jesus doesn't have an earthly father right now. His father is just the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't have any legal earthly claim to the throne. Note the angel's words. Here it is in verse 21. He says, she will bear a son and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. You, Joseph shall call his name. This is the same phrase that was spoken to Mary when the angel visited Mary. And so both are involved, both Mary and Joseph are involved in naming Jesus. And yet, Joe's involvement is more significant. Now, Joseph is not the father. We understand that. The Holy Spirit is the father, and it is necessarily so. The virgin birth is necessary. And if you look at Matthew and Luke, they drive it home with an exclamation point that the Holy Spirit is the father of Jesus. And there are several reasons that that, is, uh, that, that has to be the case. And I'm going to give you four. Uh, write them down real quickly. This is a little rabbit hole. This could be a whole other sermon in itself. But here's the reason, four reasons for the virgin birth. There are more. But one is Christ's preexistence. Christ's preexistence. He has existed since before the world existed. So how can two people come together and produce something that has already pre-existed the world. They can't. And so the virgin birth is necessary be, simply because he has existed even before the world. Number two, his mediator status. Christ had to be fully human to stand on our behalf, and yet he had to be fully God in order to represent God to man. And so he has to be both. Fully human, fully God. Virgin birth is necessary. The prophecies that talk about the birth of the Messiah, and one of those Matthew talks about even in this text, say that the Messiah's birth would be a special one. And here's number four. Just write Jehoiakim's Kim's curse and write Jeremiah 22, 30. And I don't have time to go into that. You'll have to ask me later. Okay. But the virgin birth is absolutely necessary. And in Matthew and Luke, there is absolutely the spotlight on the Holy Spirit as being the father of Jesus Christ. And yet Matthew gives all of this space, all of this ink to Joseph and to his story and to his perspective and his thoughts and his actions. Why? Because at the same time that the Messiah is to be virgin born from God, he is also to be humanly entitled to the throne of David. And there's only one way that that's possible. God is the father, but Joseph has to become the adoptive 
father. And Joseph has to agree to God's plan. That's what the angel is proposing here. You shall name him. Adoption process was pretty simple in the first century. You want the kid? Give him a name. He's yours. And by the very process of naming this child, Joseph is legally claiming him as his own and adopting him. And that meant a couple things. Number one, it proved that Joseph was fully convinced by this time of the virgin birth. If there was any doubt before, there was no doubt now that the father was the Holy Spirit. And number two, it gave Jesus the legal right to David's throne. He was now the heir. His earthly father was a descendant of David and gave him legal claim to the throne while his real father is God himself. And so he's fully man, fully God. And the adoption was the key. And I don't know if you've been in those shoes or know people who have been in those adoptive shoes. That's a big change in plans. You had other ideas. Now, notice what he called him. He called his name Jesus. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. The word Jesus simply means God saves. It comes from Yeshua. Anytime you hear of an Old Testament name with ah at the end, it means God. And so Yeshua means salvation is from God. There are other words like this, other names in the Old Testament. Isaiah means salvation is from God. Joshua means salvation is from God. Hosea means may somebody save us and may that somebody be God. Hosea. And all of these names speak to God saving his people from some external force, some external kingdom, some external ruler, some power. But that's not what Jesus is here to do. It would have been natural for those in Joseph's day to think of the Messiah, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, Messiah, to be the person who would save them from the nation they were ruled by, which was Rome. That's what the Messiah should have done. But the angel says, no, that's not what the Messiah is here for. The Messiah is here to save you, Joseph, you, Mary, from your sins. Have you ever thought about how Joseph and Mary came to know the gospel? You know the gospel, right? The gospel, this idea that Jesus Christ has rescued us by his righteousness and sacrifice, that it's not anything that we can do on our own. We can't manufacture righteousness. Jesus has already done it for us, and we accept it. And because we accept it, because of his sacrifice, we are seen as holy and righteous by God, even though we're not, because Jesus has made it that way. And so Joseph was a good Jew. He was doing, and he was serving, and he was obeying, and he was sacrificing, and he was adhering to the law, And yet he was still coming up short. And it's possible that even in this name, he got a glimpse of the gospel. And what good news that would have been to Joseph, that he understood by what the angel told him to give uh, the name to give. He understood the very thing that we understand, that Christ has done it all for us. That was a change in plans. There's one more, verse 24, and we got to get a running start at this one. Verse 24, it says, when Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. I want you to stop there. 
Okay. When Joseph wakes up, he is betrothed, right? He's legally married, but he's not. The wedding ceremony hasn't taken place. And most commentators agree that what it means when he says when he took his wife, it means that there was a wedding. They had a wedding and they made it official. And just like betrothals, weddings were a little different than we're used to. Weddings in the first century looked just a little different. There's a writer that writes about what a wedding looks like in the first century. Let me read some of what he writes. He says, on the evening of the actual marriage, the bride was led from her paternal home to that of her husband. And first came the merry sounds of music. They hired DJs even back then, first century. And then came those who distributed among the people wine and oil and nuts among the children. I always wondered why there were nuts on the table. You ever, every wedding you go to, there are nuts on the table. Here's why, right? First century. Next, the bride covered with the bridal veil and her long hair flowing, surrounded by her companions. And they, led, they were led by the friends of the bridegroom and the children of the bride chamber, which is a fancy way of saying all the people that were at the wedding. They would lead the bride into the uh, groom's house and all there were in festive array and some carried torches or lamps on poles and those nearest had myrtle branches and chaplets of flowers and everyone rose to salute the procession or join it. And it was deemed almost a religious duty to break into praise of the beauty, the modesty or the virtues of the bride. You know that to be true, right? I mean, when you go to a wedding... And you're sitting there in the audience and all of a sudden they open the back door and the preacher says, please stand. And you stand and you look back. Nobody goes, it, it doesn't happen, right? That's not, that's not the way you do that. It's, oh, doesn't she look awesome? Doesn't, she's breathtaking. Doesn't matter, right? Same in here. And then arrived at her new home. She was led to her husband. And some such formula as take her according to the law of Moses and of Israel would be spoken and the bride and bridegroom would be crowned with garlands and then a formal legal instrument was signed. And then after the prescribed washing of hands and a benediction, the marriage supper began a feast and there were cups that were filled and solemn prayers of bridal dedication spoken over the cups. And so at last the feast lasted. It might be more than a day. And while each sought to contribute, this is hilarious, sometimes coarsely, sometimes wisely to the general enjoyment. You've been at those weddings too, right? You've been to the, uh, uh, the reception where the best man stands up and sometimes he says things that should not be said, but sometimes he gets it right on, right? Till at last, and here's the part I need you to understand. The friends of the bridegroom, the people who are at the wedding, Lead the bar, bridal prayer, uh, the, light, the bridal pair, excuse me, into the cedar and the hoopah or the bridal chamber and bed. Wait a minute. Did you hear that? The people at the wedding usher the bride and the groom into the bridal chamber and the bed. And one theologian says, the bride went with her hair unloosened. I'll bet she did. Uh, in the modern vernacular, it's business time, right? In the words that make our heads explode even more, the wedding party stayed put. They didn't go anywhere. 
I told you I need, you needed duct tape for this, right? Okay. Um, and they stayed outside until the door opened, until the couple emerged victorious. Or maybe they emerged with a victorious secret. I don't, I don't know. Either way, okay? Now, I'm begging somebody. I need some research done on this. Would somebody at the next wedding that you're at, <laughs> would you convince some people? I mean, think about the bozos that were in your wedding. Right. Think back to that. There are surely some people who would be willing to do this for me to get some people uh, together and to follow the bride and groom and to camp outside their door. And if you do that, would you just take notes for me and get back to me as as to how that went? That would be awesome. And I could use that for uh, future research. Okay. Um, here's the reason that I've told you all of this. And here's the end. You need to understand why they stood outside the door. And this is going to be, get a little PG-13 if it hasn't already been, okay? So, so cover your husband's ears or whatever, all right? After the couple emerged, they would produce the sheet. And they would produce the blood on the sheet. And it was proof, number one, that they had consummated the marriage. And number two, that they had done so for the first time. The matter at hand. The reason they're standing outside the door is the matter of virginity. And what does our text say? Go back to our text. It says, he took his wife, but knew her not. What does that mean? Now, this is conjecture, absolutely. We're reading between the lines of Scripture. This isn't there, but it's probable Absolutely probable. What it boiled down to is that when Joseph and Mary began to be ushered into the bridal chamber by their wedding party, Joseph put up his hand and said, wait, stop. We're not doing that. And here's why. And he began maybe for the first time to share with everyone the facts that Mary was already pregnant. That the angels had spoken to them. That the Holy Spirit was the father. That this future child would be the very Messiah that they were all looking for, that the consummation that they were expecting to happen would not happen tonight. We're not going into that room. Mary is still a virgin. And despite these things, there will still be a baby because this is God's doing. Can you imagine that kind of statement? Joseph openly and boldly standing for what God had done in the lives of he and his wife. He knew her not. Now, put this all together, you need to know Matthew and why he writes. Matthew writes to a Jewish audience, people who were looking for the second greater David, people who were looking for the Messiah. And his first and probably his main order of business through the whole book is to prove that Jesus is that Messiah. In chapter 1, he lists this genealogy and he says Jesus is descended from King David. He has right to the throne. And in chapter two, Matthew asserts that God is Jesus's father. No earthly man. It's God. It's the Holy Spirit. And the witness to these two events that he puts the spotlight on is this guy named Joseph. And it's as if Matthew is trying to say, look, I'm writing to you to try to prove who Jesus is. But Joseph lived who Jesus was. I'm using an ink and pen Joseph used his hands and his feet and his words and his very life and his decisions and his actions. All of his actions point to this child being the son of God. He proves Jesus to be the Messiah by his 
life. Look at it. He's the son of David. And he's willing to sacrifice and cut short his own life so that the Messiah could come and be the son of David. Joseph called his name. He named the child. He adopted him. So much did he believe that this was the Messiah, that he legally adopted him so that he could have rights to the throne. Joseph named him Jesus, right? And that pointed to his purpose, which was to save people from their sin. It wasn't to topple kings or kingdoms. It was to deal with the thing that plagued people most and rescue people from themselves, their own sin. And then Joseph changed his own wedding plans. Don't you think he had those just like you? He had plans on his wedding night, but because he saw that it was the only way that no one could deny the uniqueness and holiness of Jesus' birth, he changed those plans. And Joseph proved who Jesus was with every step of his life. And Matthew, without even writing it, is asking us a question. He's putting this example up and he's saying, Joseph proved who who Jesus was by his life. What about you? How are you proving that Jesus is the Lord of your life? What sacrifices have you made? What part of your life did you give as proof that he is the Christ? What have you adopted into your life as proof that he is the king? What have you done with the sin in your life? Have you ignored it and swept it under the rug? Or have you tried to deal with it yourself? Or have you given it to Jesus, proving that he is the only one righteous enough to be the sacrifice for sin? And what plans have you changed? Even today, what plans have you changed so that no one could deny that Jesus is the Lord of your life? Plans change. And it's amazing how we can get so far away from where we had planned to be, from where we had planned to go, from where we had planned to end up, and yet find that it's exactly where we needed to be. I'm going to call the band up, and um, as I do, I want to read you an excerpt from an article that was written by C.S. Lewis. And the title of the article is, What's God's Plan for Your Life? And he ends with this picture, this analogy. He ends this way. He says, imagine yourself as a living house, and God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But then, presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts enormously and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? And the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's putting up a new wing here and he's putting on an extra floor here and he's running up towers there and he's making courtyards. You see, you thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, a little house with a white picket fence. But he is building a palace. He's building this palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. And then he ends this way. Blessed is the man or woman who wholeheartedly submits to God's plan. Joseph did. What about you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you.
for the plans that you have laid out for us. I thank you for this plan that you have given even before the foundation of the world that a baby would be born in a manger that would be the sacrifice for everyone so that everyone could have life beyond this one. I thank you for that plan. I also thank you for those times that we plan so um, so vigorously and we think that our plans are right and wise and the correct course of action and yet you step in and you have other you have other plans and they are always the right one in the end help us to submit to that plan that you have for all we ought to have thought and have not thought for all we ought to have said and have not said all we ought to have done and have not done we ask forgiveness it's in Jesus name i pray amen